Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I hope you all had a good and safe, healthy uh, weekend. Um, we're going to take a break today from our usual conversations about the political headlines of the day for a couple of reasons. One, because we are still at summer vacation time, and a lot of people out there are looking for books for good beach reading. Um, and also because I am a sucker, as I've said on the show before, for crime and legal thrillers and police procedurals, novels, TV series, and the like. And I have to tell you, we've got uh, the author, one of the best-known authors of crime thrillers with us today, Atlanta's Karen Slaughter. Karen Slaughter uh, does write out of Atlanta, lives in Atlanta, but she's become an international bestseller. She has sold some 35 million books in the two decades that she has been writing. She's been published in more than 100 countries. And so a new book from Karen Slaughter is eagerly anticipated. And there's a brand new one that was released last week. It's called False Witness. I finished it just yesterday afternoon. And Karen Slaughter, as I said to you right before the show went on the air, what a ride you took me on. Thank you so much for that. And thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I think a starting point uh, for our conversation, since we do talk on this show and have since the beginning of the pandemic about the politics of COVID, about public health and COVID, I think we should start by saying that you've done something that probably when you started this book back in March of 2020 might have seemed like you were getting into sort of treacherous territory. You decided that COVID and the reality of our daily lives living with the pandemic would become a part of how your story unfolded. Um, and you said at first, I think you told someone that at first you weren't sure you were going to do that. Then you uh, saw that Michael Connolly's new book, he had done the same thing. He'd said it in a COVID environment as well. So given that you started this book in March of 2020, how did it feel to try to navigate through uh, unknown territory. You you knew about the virus and what it was doing in the in the in the present at that point, but you didn't know about vaccines, what was going to happen with it. How, so how did all that come together for you? Well, first I should say Mike took the easy way out because he had it at the very beginning, <laughs> and it was really relevant because one of his characters was in prison, and as we know, prisons, cruise ships, uh, retirement homes, anywhere where people are trapped together. Um, were really just sitting ducks. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I remember reading, um, one of the very few things I re- remember reading about in high school uh, was the flu pandemic of 1918. And it didn't really come alive to me until I read Pale Horse, Pale Rider in college at Georgia State. Go Panthers. Sorry I dropped out. Stop sending me fundraising stuff. Um <laughs> But, you know, it really brought that alive in a way that fiction can. And so this is a short, uh, well, she didn't like the short story. She wanted to call it a short novel. Catherine Ann Porter wrote, she was also called Callie when she was younger, so there's a character named Callie as an homage to her. 
but she's talking about her own experience with the flu pandemic because she nearly died. And what she went through is very similar to what we're seeing now. You know, people with fears that they're going to be evicted, that they're going to lose loved ones, waiting to get into the hospital because there isn't space, that sort of thing. And it just really stuck with me all these years later. And I thought, I want to capture what we're going through. And you know this in Atlanta, our distilleries decided to start making hand sanitizer. So, you know, everywhere you went, it sounded, it smelled like the under the bleachers at the prom because people smelled like tequila or rum or, you know, whatever, depending on where the distillery was making hand sanitizer. And that's the kind of thing I think that we'll forget eventually, those little details. And I wanted to put that in a book. I'm curious about what, um, the mechanics, if you don't mind talking about that, for just a couple of minutes. Of You, you start the book in March of 2020. Um, just, and I'd love to get a sense of what kind of updating you might have done uh, as, as time went on toward the publication date. So, and by, by that, I mean you actually have a one-line reference to the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol uh, in the book, which, of course, was January of 2021 at a point when I would have thought your book was pretty much locked up and ready to go. Well, you're right. I mean, a book uh, like this that's kind of capturing things as they happen is difficult to write. Fortunately, I've written lots of books, so I'm pretty um, clever at encapsulating things. So I knew where all the COVID references were. So, you know, I was able to just look at them in pieces and you know, of course, when the vaccines came, I was probably the on, only sane person in the world who was like, oh, crap, I can't believe, you know, we've got these <laughs> vaccines, so I have to go back and, and you know, change and tweak these parts. Um, but it was sort of, I just had to really pay attention to what was going on, and I did have to change things. You know, in the very beginning, the courts closed, and then, I don't know if you remember, in uh, summer, like we've done now, we kind of all decided we were tired of COVID and it wasn't going to happen anymore. And so the courts opened, and then COVID came back, and you know, so it was it was really kind of chasing that along. But that being said, it was very important not to have the pandemic interfere with the story. So I was very mindful of those passages and making sure they were pared down and just captured kind of what life was like, but not become the focus of the story. Um. <laughs> you do incorporate it. What's interesting, let me just make a general statement. What's always interesting about your novels is that you really do go from scenes of horrific violence, which you've never shied away from, from writing, um, to these razor-sharp, uh, funny passages um, in the book. You've, it's, a, it's a really interesting combination that uh, you bring of, of skills that you bring the book. And, and so I think about that because... I loved the way in which you, you really give us our first glimpse of COVID Atlanta when uh, we are taken to a middle school musical production of The Music Man. Uh, do you mind if, if I just read one or two sentences of your writing back to you? Absolutely. You, you point out, you say one quarter of the auditorium was uh, ta taped off. There were, one quarter was full, taped off to empty seats, keeping everyone at a distance. Masks were mandatory. Hand sanitizer flowed like peach schnapps at a prom. Nobody wanted another night of the long nasal swabs. Um, but then you also point out, and you, you mention this twice in the book, 
Men who wore their masks below their noses were the same jerks who acted like wearing a condom was a human rights violation. So two things about that. Um, We all lived the kind of experience you're talking about, whether it was a kid's uh, school play before the lockdown set in or um, another event where we were early on really nervous about it being in a public space. Well, yeah, I thought that was really important to just get the set the, the tone right away that this was a different setting, um, and that this was how we had adapted. And you know, I also mentioned a lot of parents getting getting into fights about things and how some parents chose to stream from home. Which you know, if you're a parent, you know they're probably doing that not because of COVID, but just because they would probably kill themselves if they had to sit through another musical. Um, but that's one thing that I have to do a lot of research on because I don't have children that I know of, uh, and I um, I have to read mommy blogs and you know I I really don't like children and a lot of women on these mommy blogs don't like them either so it really is something that I love reading I mean obviously they love their children but toddlers let's be honest are terrorists right you know Bin Laden has nothing on a screaming toddler uh, so. I really have to dig deep into that, and it never occurred to me um, how torturous it would be to be the parent in one of these musicals. And also for Lee, you know, her daughter is a teenager. She thought she had put all these musicals behind her, and then her kid got involved in backstage stuff, and she got roped back in. Um, so let's. this is a good time to introduce the characters in your book, and I want to be careful. Um, I think... I'd really like you to just tell us a little bit about who these people are that you write this book about. But one of the great thrills of reading a Karen Slaughter novel is the joy of the twists and turns that in this book start very, very early on and don't let up throughout much of the book. But just if you would, give us a capsule summary of Fatal Witness. Well, so I, I, to me it's about two sisters, and that's Lee Collier and her sister Callie. And they have something really horrific happen to them when they're young women. Um, you know, I always say, if you're going to be in the first part of a novel, pick someone else, like Daniel Steele, because if you're in mind, something really traumatic is going to happen to you. Uh, and that's exactly what happens to them. And then we catch up with them 20-plus years later, and we see the fallout from this trauma. And I was really mindful of the COVID pandemic and the impact it's going to have on all of us. You know, where are we going to be in 20 years? Probably most of us in therapy. Um, but we know a lot of things about trauma, especially in early childhood, how it can lead to uh, more substance abuse, alcohol addiction, heart disease, diabetes. You know, there are all kinds of health and psychological uh, complications that are a result of early childhood trauma. And so we definitely see that with Lee. Lee's a, a lawyer. She went to Northwestern. You know, she, she's one of these classic pulled herself up by her bootstraps from a very humble beginning, uh, went to this uh, great law school, and, you know, she's at a white shoe law firm now. And that was her response to trauma, was to just become this really driven type A personality. On the other hand, there's her sister Callie, and her response was to abdicate all control. And she's suffering from an, a very, um, really horrible addiction. She struggles with it every single minute of the day. Uh, she's very aware of the addiction and what she's lost because of that. I mean, that, that's uh, one of my grandmother's favorite stay, sayings was that, you know, you're just smart enough to know how stupid you were. 
And Callie definitely has that. But at her heart, you know, she's a good person. And we tend to see in in popular fiction and films junkies as these very binary things. You know, they're they're horrible people and they're pathetic or they're thieves and they're nasty. And I wanted to humanize addiction through Callie because we all know people. We have family members, we have extended family friends who have struggled with addiction. And they're human beings, and they deserve to have their humanity. I think it's interesting that in uh, if when I ask you to give us a little summary of the book, you start with the characters, the two sisters. And, of course, this story is about a family that's incredibly dysfunctional, but it doesn't mean we don't care about them. And, and the reason I think it's interesting you start with that is because I know you've told other interviewers that uh, you have to have strong, true characters because anything else that might happen in the action of a book is meaningless if the reader doesn't care about who these people are, right? Absolutely. So, okay, so I want to talk a little bit about, first of all, you talk about uh, Cali, Calliope. Where did that name come from? Mississippi. Um, you know, I, I was a very well-read kid uh, in Jonesboro, Georgia. My dad j- knew I loved reading, and that, that was very strange in my family, uh, that I'd much rather sit in my room and read a book than go out and play. And so he made sure I was at the library. But there were just certain words that I did not know how to pronounce because I'd only read them, and that was one of them. Um, Persephone was another, Persephone. I still have trouble with that. You know, there's just some things you learn when you're little and you just can't unlearn them. Um, But I love the idea of her having a name that most people couldn't pronounce. Um, And, you know, we all, as Southerners, we all have a middle name somewhere in the family that's just crazy. Uh, And I thought Callie could be someone who represented that. Well, that begs the question. Do you have one that you don't use in your writing? Um, Nom de plume? (laughs) No, you know, Karen Slaughter (laughs) is my real name. I'm not going to tell you my middle name. It's probably on Wikipedia, but it is one of those crazy names that was always mispronounced. (laughs) See, now I'm going to have to go search for it during (laughs) the break. But (laughs) So you you talk about that that this binary notion of uh, junkies is just one example of people who who are... struggling in life. Um, and, and you write pretty extensively about Callie's addiction and the various pills and things that she's uh, injecting, she's inhaling, whatever. But, but you do write about it with compassion. And, and in, your, in your acknowledgments at the very end of the book, uh, you say something that I think says a lot about how you feel about your characters and what they represent. You say, I took many liberties when writing about drugs and how to use them because I am not in the business of offering how-tos. If you are one of the many people struggling with addiction, please know that there is always someone out there who loves you. That's a beautiful statement. Well, it's true. And, you know, it's very hard to love an addict um, because it's, it's always going to be the addict's choice to choose the drug, you know, no matter how much they love you back. And... It's just this inability to see past a drug, especially when you're talking about something like heroin, which is a, all kinds of different levels of addiction. You know, there's the psychological, but then there's a very real physical addiction. 
And it's why I talk a, a little bit in the book about various forms of treatment that are incredibly unsuccessful with most people who are addicted to heroin, like rehab, like AA, I mean, by, or NA, by their own statistics, about 5% of people in AA are successful in the program, which is great if AA works for you, but we don't really look at, okay, well, that doesn't work for you. What else can we do? And we know that medically-assisted detox is much more humane and has a, a, a bigger success rate, but then you get into people saying, well, we're not going to give drugs to junkies. Um, but, you know, we give drugs to diabetics. We give drugs to people who are dealing with all kinds of diseases. And, you know, what we're doing isn't working. I mean, the war on drugs is, my God, if we had spent that much money on schools, we would have the best education in the entire world. Uh, if we'd spend that money on social services, on training police officers, on you know, all these other things we could have spent it on instead of, um, you know, sending our soldiers out to try to stop drugs from coming in when we could just say, hey, let's stop people who are, you know, vulnerable to drug addiction. Let's help them. Uh, so that that's the kind of thing that I wanted to really shine a light on. And most drug addicts, as far as I'm as Callie, do not want to be drug addicts. They really, really don't. Um, you know, there are some, of course, who enjoy it, but people like Callie are more often the case where they just they can't get out of it. There's just no way for them to see a light at the end of the tunnel without thinking it's a train. But what's interesting about what you just said is that methadone obviously is a treatment for people who are addicted to heroin, but we learn as we read the book that Callie uses methadone as another way to get high, and, and, and so it defeats the, the purpose that we hoped it would be intended for, yes? Well, she uses it to keep herself at a baseline so she doesn't go through physical withdrawal because, I mean, physical withdrawal from heroin, is it can kill you. It literally can kill you. It's so horrible. Um, and so that's what she's using it for so that she can function. And a lot of people who are on methadone maintenance, they have jobs, they go out in the community, they're with their families. You know, if you think of the alternative of you know, parents abandoning children, you know, constantly interacting with law enforcement, constantly needing social services, this sort of thing, um, it seems just from a, a very nihilistic standpoint, hey, what's going to be the cheaper thing for us to do as a society? Well, it's helping them giving them this maintenance is a lot cheaper than incarcerating them, breaking up mm. their families, you know, creating this chain of addiction that can go through families. Um, so thank you for, for explaining that. Um, for people who may not have read your books, I, by the way, I have to tell you, we have a meeting with our whole new staff every morning, every weekday morning. And on Friday, um, I talked about what we had done on the show that day, and then I said, oh, you all should know, Karen Slaughter will be with us on Monday. And one of the producers of another show at George Public Radio literally gasped, Karen, and said, oh, my God, she's my mother's favorite writer. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm sure that that producer is listening to you this morning. But uh, that's just an example of how widespread uh, your uh, what you've done with your books has, uh, has has penetrated through to so many people, not just here but around the world. So I thought that was a very funny little moment. Well, I you know I have really loyal readers, and one thing about them is that they love forcing my books on other people. Uh, so I'm very <laughs> grateful for them for spreading the word. 
Um, all right. So I, what I started to say was for people who, who haven't read your books, one of the things that's really always um, interesting for those of us who live in Georgia is the way in which you work uh, settings around the, particularly around the city, but, but other parts of the state as well. Um, you even created a fictional county in Georgia in, in a series of books, Grant County. But in False Witness, there are any number of those references. I think the first of which, which really caught my eye, is um, the law firm that Lee has now gone to work for. When she, she is first called by the senior partner in that firm, in a kind of a mysterious way, he wants to see her. And she's a new associate. She's not even a partner at this point. And she doesn't know what he wants from her. And she goes to the um, building where their offices are, very Tony offices. And uh, you've said it without naming it specifically in that kind of that remarkable piece of architecture up there at Lenox Road and Peachtree. You, you talk about the building having a huge wave that comes over it, which, which is that building, I assume, right? And I'm curious... When you're driving around and knowing your books are going to largely be set in Atlanta, are you always looking at places and thinking, oh, I could put a law firm here. I could have them go into a, a restaurant there. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I always try to think of a way to describe them that generally is very unflattering uh, because we've got a lot of architecture in Atlanta that you wouldn't hold up as like, hey, look at this city. We're so great. Um, my favorite one to make fun of is the one across from Colony Square that looks like a giant speculum, uh, and you can see it from Piedmont, so I, I ding that one quite a few times. Um, I mean, not to say we don't have some beautiful buildings in Atlanta, but I mean, I think we can all agree the, you know, the West End, for instance, um, there are lots of ways to describe it that are unflattering and probably refer to genitalia. Uh, and so, you know, I, but I also try to think of it in context of the character. You know, what sort of, like Callie loves animals, so every time she sees someone, she's going to compare them to an animal. Uh, and for Lee, a lot of her imagery is about open spaces, freedom, that sort of thing. And so that building seemed to fit really well. You know, if you think about the ocean, vast and unknowing, and then a giant wave coming in, and that's sort of a a metaphor for what's about to happen to her in that office building. She's caught in that crest of the wave. Yeah, she's brought in by the senior partner, and she doesn't understand quite why her, and we won't tell people why until they read the book, um, because uh, he wants her to defend um, Andrew Tennant, a young man who I don't think it's giving too much away uh, to say has been, um, is facing trial on uh on a very serious crime of uh, of uh, rape and um, murder, right? Uh, correct, yeah, yeah. And one of the things people in Georgia might appreciate is her partner is very much a UGA graduate, so everything is black and red. And I can't tell you how many emails I got from translators all over the world asking about Uga, the dog, you know, how, what does this mean? How do we translate this? And it's, I just, I had to send them the websites, and one of them did a really deep dive and couldn't believe, you know, he's in Brazil, he couldn't believe that we have uh, air-conditioned compartments for a bulldog that goes to you know, the games. And I said, but they get really hot. They need to cool down. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, Kelly walks into the private elevator of the senior partner, the managing partner, whatever his actual title is, and it is exactly what you describe. <laughs> it's it's um, got red and black, a red and black interior. He's definitely a UGA man. How does so you you. As you said, you're a Georgia State dropout. I'm a dropout of about four colleges, so I relate to never finishing college. Um, but it would probably be a lot of fun for you to get to sort of make fun of that uh, UGA uh, uh, mythology that we all experience when we live in Georgia. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I like to poke fun of uh, football teams, and I made a joke about there not being a football team in Austin in one book, and people got very angry. Uh, so, you know, I shouldn't have messed with Texas on that one, I guess. But it is a lot of fun just to put in little things that I know only a handful of people generally living in Georgia will get. So, you know, that's my little gift to my home state. All right. Um, I want to get to a break right now. Uh, our uh, conversation will continue in a moment with Karen S. Slaughter, one of the best-known, best-selling writers of crime fiction literally in the world. Her new novel is False Witness. By the way, if you're listening to us on one of our stations up in the North Georgia Mountains, uh, you might know her better as the daughter of the guy who owns the Coin Laundry in Blue Ridge. That's your fame up there, isn't it, Karen? It is. My dad's very well known for his uh, clean <laughs> machines and free Wi-Fi. All right. Karen Slaughter will be back with me after these messages. As I said at the very top of the show, we're putting aside the political headlines uh, for Today, we'll be back with them. We have a big show uh, tomorrow in which we'll get back into all the state and national political news with our panel. But today, we're really happy to have Karen Slaughter with us. She is an international best-selling author, some 35 million books sold, which is really a hard figure to grasp. And uh, her new book is called False Witness. And as I said at the very top, I found it very hard to put this book down and finish it yesterday afternoon uh, and, and really enjoyed reading it. Um, Karen, I got to ask you, you do in the book exhibit, there, there are many examples of this, a wicked sense of humor, but it seems that it may carry over into your life. When I was kind of looking at different uh, 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 stories on the web, when I was searching websites, I came across, for this show, I came across a video of a conversation you had with your fellow crime writer, Mary Kay Andrews, who's also uh, based right here in Atlanta. She had written a book called The Newcomers. And for this conversation, which was a video conversation, I assume, on Zoom, it looked like you had literally dummied up a cover of the book that had the same kind of artwork as the actual book and kept calling it her new book, The Cucumber. And I was like, the lengths you went to make that happen just really boggled my mind. Well, you can definitely tell I'm the youngest of three girls because uh, I can be a little scamp. I do that a lot. Um, I do. Kathy Reichs, you know, every book has uh, the word bone in it, which I have basically a 10-year-old boy's sense of humor, so you can imagine what I did with all of those. Um, and I, I even said to her, Kathy, why do you keep asking me to do things with you when you know I'm going to do this? And she said, I have no idea. 
But uh, I do, I do love making making uh, silly puns and jokes, and and you know, in the book, Callie is the same way. She loves coming up with names for fish or you know different animals that have a pun in them, and I that definitely is fr- directly from me. Anybody who knows me knows that I was delighted to do that. Karen, I have sung your praises throughout this interview, but I do have to say your puns are cringeworthy. Tell, just give us a couple of examples, some of the examples of the puns for different kinds of animals that Callie uh, names. Well, uh, so I have uh, some fish, uh, Swim Shady, yeah. Mr. Darcy. Um, my favorite, though, it, you either have to be a French Great Pyrenees enthusiast or an idiot to really think it's funny. Because Great Pyrenees have two dew claws. Those are the little thumbs on the side of their legs, for lack of a better explanation. And I have uh, a, a dog named Dew Claude. Uh, so that is a really, that perfectly encapsulates my silliness, I think. And it was a great opportunity. How, how do you know that about the Great Pyrenees? I mean, where did, you have, there are so many things, references in your book to things that you, the, the wide range of your curiosity is always on display in your books. I love really weird details, and I've always particularly loved animal ones. I got a, someone really set me on the wrong track when I was in first grade. My teacher gave me a calendar that had an animal a day, uh, facts, and I would go to my Encyclopedia Britannica and just look for the worst thing you could know about the animal um, or the most interesting thing. I love that mice, if, if they're in the wild, if you put a wheel in the field, the mice will get on the wheel. They just love running on the wheel. I mean, that kind of thing just blows my mind. So, you know, our octopuses will just punch fish for no reason because they're jerks. Uh, that sort of thing I love because you see it in real life, too. You know, we're not that far in our behavior from a lot of these animals. Um, so, you know, you might meet a guy, you think, well, he, he's a real octopus. Um, you know, he's just going to be a jerk. You're, this book is, the, 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 the sisters participate in an, a crime that's really unsettling and gruesome. Um, and, and so the, and that, we, we learn about that fairly early on. And so that's kind of unsettling nature of that hangs over much of the book. But you do talk a lot about tropical fish in this book, too, at, because of Callie's interest in them. And some of the descriptions of those fish lend themselves to the unsettling feeling we have as we read. And I'm thinking specifically about the anglefish, which you describe. That is, it really, really uh, revolted me. <laughs> what is an anglefish? What does it do? Well, you know, it's the poor little male fish is just drawn to her. It's a horrible looking fish. I mean, you should look, you know, people should look it up online. It just is very scary. Sam, well, Sam, let's put a picture of an anglefish up online. <laughs> Go ahead, Karen. <laughs> but the male just uh, he, to mate with the female, he bites her basically in the butt, and then she releases chemicals that will melt him, and he's stuck on her for the rest of his miserable life. He's sort of like has locked-in syndrome, so he's there, but he's not really there, and she just uses him, and it, it really plays out well as a, a, something that goes on between a couple of characters in the book. 
Um, but th- those are the kinds of details I love is, you know, just being able to say, look, this is happening in nature. It's happening uh, with humans as well. Um, well, thank you for uh, sharing that with us. I really, that description just really was uh, troubling uh, to me. Um, let's talk a little bit. I want to, I, I do want to come back to some of the themes you discuss in your book, but I, but I also want to talk about the nonprofit work that you're involved in. And, and one of the most important efforts that you've uh, been involved with says a lot about how you grew up. You talked to us about the fact that when you were a kid, you, you read book a lot of books. And so you become deeply involved. You've started an organization uh, to support public libraries. Talk to us about that. It's called Save the Libraries. And to date, we've raised about a million bucks and given it all away. Um, to libraries, mostly my local la- uh, library in DeKalb County through the Friends of the DeKalb Library. And, you know, it started at the 08 economic downturn because I'm in publishing, so I would go to a lot of library events and things like that, and I was noticing a lot of my favorite older librarians were being kind of forced out into early retirement. Hours were being cut. We saw this in Atlanta um, where our politicians, in their great wisdom, decided uh, people can just get a Kindle. They don't really need a library anymore, and so they cut funding drastically. Uh, and what we know about statistically about that time is more people were relying on the library because, of course, if you have a Kindle, you need a credit card. You need, I mean, you, it's an investment, and it's a luxury in a lot of ways to be able to to read digital books. And so. I thought, let's help libraries, and we did fundraisers, Lee Child, Catherine Stockett, Mary Kay Andrews, author of The Cucumber. Um, we we got together <laughs> in different states, um, Tess Gerritsen, Charlene Harris, you know, all of it, it wasn't a hard call to make, uh, but I did say to him, look, this all the money needs to go to the library, so we'll pay our own way. Uh, we'll pay for our hotel and our flight, and we'll show up, and we'll raise money for them. And then at the end of the day, I thought, well, why don't you just donate the money that you would spend doing that, and we'll just give it to the libraries. And that's what we do. We just give block grants to them, and we say, if you want, you know, in in Griffin, we helped with a children's reading group. Um, You know, in others, we've said, get the toilet fixed. You know, put, put this toward the roof fund. You know, do whatever you need to do to keep the library open. And what we've learned during the pandemic is just how important libraries are, especially in rural areas. You know, kids don't have access to the Internet. I go to North Georgia where the Internet is so slow, you can't really do anything at 4 o'clock when all the kids get home from school and they're watching TikTok. Um, So they give them hotspots. They let them borrow laptops. They give them access to online um, classes, things like that. So, you know, if you look at what... A library cost. It's such a small investment compared to what we get back. Um, so I want to talk about that for a minute more. I moved here from Chicago, but I've been here forever now. I moved here in 80, 1983, so, you know, 35 whatever years that ago is. And I grew up with libraries. I, I grew up just outside of Chicago in a town called Skokie. And the public library in Skokie was a beautiful, beautiful a building with with just more books than you could ever possibly want to have. And it was there, by the way, when I was in eighth grade that I discovered the Perry Mason novels and fell really in love with reading Perry Mason back in those. It's kind of how I got into to crime thrillers, legal thrillers, or whatever. But but the point I wanted to make was 
it really disappointed me when I moved to Georgia and realized that the libraries around me were not going to be the kinds of libraries I'd grown up with and was used to. And, and that's been troubling to me ever since, so I commend you on your work. Well, also, you know, that was probably a Carnegie library because there's so many in the Chicago area um, where Carnegie, a very wealthy man, came from Scotland where they had public libraries. Most of the libraries at the time were private here in America. And he said, well, this needs to be universal. And we see that happen, you know, but what I'd like to see more of is let's just tax really wealthy people instead of relying on them to build buildings with their names on them. Uh, and let everybody pay for libraries, everybody pay for these beautiful public spaces, because they should be a celebration of books, of learning, of communities, because they're the backbone of the community. And it's just really mind-boggling to me that we don't make that small investment that has such a gigantic return, because kids who read do better in school. If they do better in school, they're more likely to go to college. If they go to college, they're more likely to get better jobs, and they pay higher taxes. So, you know, it's really a self-fulfilling prophecy. The um, homepage of Save the Libraries, which, by the way, you can go to it at savethelibraries.com, is a quote from Harper, has a quote from Harper Lee. Until I feared I would lose it, I never loved to read. One does not love breathing. Yeah. Great quote. Great lady. Um, well, and that brings me to a question that I wanted to ask you. You, your books have enough um, fine writing in them uh, that it would be a mistake to just call you. I was a little troubled by how to do this: writing crime thrillers, uh, uh, writing cop, uh, uh, you know, police procedurals. All of that seems too narrow for you because there's so much fine writing in your books that you could have, at a certain point, I assume, made a choice that you would write about much farther ranging subjects than, than, than crime. And yet that's the direction you went. Where did that start for you? And um, as you continue on that, that journey, do you have the desire to get completely away from that kind of writing and do something totally different? Well, I should say I unabashedly love crime novels. You know, and a lot of times when we have an, a crime novel that many, many people who think they're smart love, it stops being a crime novel. We say it transcends mm -hmm. the genre. Dickens wrote about crime, crime and punishment. So much crime, they put it in the title. You know, The Great Gatsby, it's a murder story. So, you know, I really love writing this type of book. It's something I feel a calling for. And one of the main reasons for that, other than this is the type of book I love to read, is when I was growing up, I was witnessing a crime, and I had no idea. My grandmother was horrifically abused by my grandfather. And he was an awful drunk, and you know they had eight kids. He would drink his salary from the mill. I mean, it was just sort of like a, a rolling Flannery O'Connor story, to be honest. But... We would go after church to Sunday lunch or on holidays, and my grandmother would have a black eye or she would have occasionally a broken bone. And my uncles would tease her about being clumsy. And as I got older, I thought, nobody's that clumsy. This is my grandfather. And being silent about that only helped my grandfather. And it somehow shifted the blame onto my grandmother because it became a shameful thing to talk about 
where even though we knew it was happening, it was easier to tease her about being clumsy than to say, you know, this horrible thing's happening. We should stop it. We should do something about it. And so when I started writing and, and started taking writing seriously, I was thinking about her and I thought, I want to tell women's stories and I don't want to do what I had been seeing in a lot of crime novels, which is sort of sexualizing violence and making it titillating or making it, you know, fade to black or, you know, or if a woman had been in an abusive relationship, the way that she got over it was to find a new man who made beautiful love to her, you know, that sort of um, kind of a male fantasy about how he can help heal a woman when we know that healing for men and women only comes from within. So I wanted to write about it in a frank way and to talk about what it leaves behind because there was lasting damage done to my family by that violence. Um, And to talk about what it does to police officers and medical examiners and communities when this sort of shocking crime happens. And to talk about it in a way that acknowledges it's happening every day, every minute of the day. You know, around the world a woman is being sexually harassed, sexually assaulted, abused, that sort of thing. And I didn't want to soften the language about it. You know, I was reading um, about the McAfee, the the billionaire software designer who uh, created this security system for antiviral software. And they said in his um, uh, obituary that he had had many teenage girlfriends. And you think, well, no, a 50-year-old man doesn't have teenage girlfriends. He's molesting teenage girls. And that's the sort of thing that I want to get away from, is just making it seem like it's normal and it's okay, because it's not. So I, here's the thing about that. I know you've said it, that it, when you first started writing, you weren't sure you really wanted to talk about social issues of the day. You didn't want to p- uh, pin down your books in terms of current events because you were afraid they would then have a short shelf life, I think is one of the reasons you were concerned about that. And then that changed for you, and you just described it yourself in terms of how you now think about the books you write. In Cop Town, um, you wrote about a uh, woman uh, cop who is uh, the subject of harassment by her male colleagues. Um, in The Last Widow, um, you uh, uh, write about violence against women. I mean, you've really stepped up, I, it seems to me, your uh, interest in telling stories that give us reasons to think about um, how we view women in society. You know, it's true, and it, there's no better way to describe this than a conversation I had this weekend with a U.S. Marshal who's a woman, and she was talking about the fact that women's clothes are just not suited for the work she does. So whenever she gets a pair of pants, she has to take it to the tailor and have the pockets made deeper. Uh, you know, she has to have belt loops sewn on. She has to, you know, we they didn't really even make clothing for women in law enforcement that was appropriate for them until very recently. And we're talking about, you know, Kevlar vests, things like that. I mean, there were pictures of her in a jacket that was immense small, but it just swallowed her up. Uh, It's not a, we don't live in a world that is designed for women. And that's something that I want to talk about. Um, Did I get that right on The Last Widow? Or is that pieces of her that really deals with violence against women? Or both of them? (laughs) Um, Well, The Last Widow, that really focuses on it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. 
By the way, we should point out that Pieces of Her, which is another book which surprises us early on with uh, seeing a woman who we have no reason to believe is capable of violence suddenly have an outburst that shocks us beyond uh, belief. And Netflix is uh, turning that into, I think, an eight-part series, right? They are, and they actually were filming in Georgia. They, they filmed for about three months in Australia, um, which was great. Australia took the virus very seriously, so there was quarantining and testing and all that. Uh, and the series stars Tony Collette, who's Australian, so I think she was probably happy to be filming from home. Uh, but then they went to Atlanta for about 10 days, and I got to see them on set when they were in underground filming a scene, and that was really fascinating to think this thing I did in my pajamas three years ago, now hundreds of people are acting it out. Um, i got to get to the final break of the show, uh, but we're going to have just a little time when we come back to talk more with Karen Slaughter, uh, the new book, False Witness. Karen Slaughter, False Witness is novel number, or book number what? How do you number how many books you've written? Because some are, are, are short, are novellas and others. So how, how many books do you have now under your belt? Well, books, it's 21. Okay, good. Um, you know, it's interesting. When, when uh, we first talked, when Amelia and Sam and I first talked about having you on the show, it was like, well, we mostly talk about politics on this show and where our listeners going to be. And then... I got the cover I needed when I was researching you and saw that way back, I think about eight years ago, you did Face the Nation with Bob Schieffer and talked about your book at that time. I think it was 2014 or something, and also the books you read. So if you're good enough for Bob Schieffer, you are certainly good enough for Political Rewind. Thank you. High praise. High praise. <laughs> um, so I want to do what you did way back then uh, as we come to the last minutes of the show. Aside from your books, what should our listeners who like crime fiction, uh, legal thrillers, police procedurals, what are you recommending these days? Who are you reading? Who do you keep up with? I love Alice Berg, and she actually helped me with some of the legal details in False Witness. Uh, she's a Stanford-educated lawyer. She writes books on her own. She wrote books with Mary Higgins Clark, so she really knows her stuff. Um, and she's just a great storyteller. Lisa Gardner, of course, is amazing. Um, she and I both do a lot of things together. We, ha we have a lot of crossover with our readers. And, you know, I love Lee Child. And one of the things that I think Lee doesn't get enough credit for is what a great sort of feminist character Jack Reacher is. Because you never have Jack Reacher meet a woman who needs saving. You know, she's always going to fight shoulder to shoulder with him. And, you know, of course, there's going to be the requisite love story because who wouldn't with Jack Reacher? Um, but, you know, she can kick butt right alongside him. And, and that's the kind of book I like is where you get this insight into, you know, men and women interacting from a place of respect as opposed to savior complexes. Uh, and, you know, if you, if you like my stuff, but you don't think it's hardcore enough, there's a, a British writer named Mo Hader, H-A-Y-D-E-R. I love, she writes really, really dark and gritty things. Um, and then I, I think my favorite writer is Denise Mina. She's a Scottish writer. But, she, you know, I write about crimes that happen once in a lifetime. I mean, Will Trent, my series character, no cop would see 
this amount of criminals. Otherwise, they would think he was probably doing it. You know, um, <laughs> but Denise writes about the more common criminal, and that's just a guy who makes a mistake, and then he makes another mistake, and he ends up making lots more mistakes, and he ends up in prison or, he, you know, the, in law enforcement. And, you know, at our very base, that's what humans are. We're just people who make mistakes, and some people, you know, might be under more scrutiny than others, or they might make bigger mistakes, and that ends, makes them land in prison and, you know, that's the kind of really um, sad story that Denise writes. Uh, we should mention that when you, you talk about Will Trent, uh, your series of books uh, featuring him, he's a GBI uh, agent. So he, that too set very specifically in the world of uh, Georgia law enforcement. And what about streaming? Are you Do you watch the, 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 the streaming shows that are police procedurals, crime thrillers, or do you try to stay away from TV? Well, I, you know, I, I'm very picky about my crime shows, um, and I'm very unforgiving. So something like Mayor of Easttown, absolutely, but, you know, a lot of these other mm-hmm. crime shows that are just kind of like um, romances where people die, uh, where they don't really nail down the details uh, that I'm not into. Um, but I love, one of my favorite shows is For All Mankind, which is on Apple. It's an alternate history where uh, Russia gets to the moon first, and it's a woman. And so they put a woman on the moon, and NASA's like, oh, crap, now we got to do the space race with women. And it's really fascinating and incredibly realistic. The same guy who did Battlestar Galactica did this show. So I like that kind of thing that just takes me out of thinking about puzzles. Yeah, you know, we've talked so much about you as a crime writer, but you are also, as a reader, you love reading nonfiction, histories, and the like. So, I mean, you really, it's really, uh, I think a lot of that ends up uh, helping us see how broad your thinking is in the books that you write. I would add, so if you haven't watched it, watch The Tunnel on Prime Video, Stephen Delane and Clements Posey, one of the great, I think, uh, police procedurals. Have you seen it? Absolutely. And, you know, there was an American remake that took yeah, place yeah. in, um, uh, I believe, Arizona or New Mexico. Um, and yeah. it was really great, too. Um, Karen Slaughter, we are out of time. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. As I've said several times now, your new novel, False Witness, is now available. And uh, I had just a great time reading it. Uh, the story is compelling. The characters are people we care about. And the fact that it's set in Georgia uh, is also a fun uh, aspect of the book. So, Karen, thank you so very much for being with us today. Best of luck with this new book, although, let's face it, you don't need luck from me to sell a lot of books. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Karen Slaughter, our guest today on Political Rewind. We are out of time uh, for today's show. We will be back tomorrow with a political... Uh, panel discussion and throughout the week we're going to be doing a lot of political conversations so don't worry if that's what you listen to is for first and foremost obviously we're going to have a lot of politics coming up in the days ahead my thanks to amelia brock senior producer to sam burmas dawes our producer to jesse nicewanger our uh, engineer and uh, that's it for us today i'll be back tomorrow uh, remember stay safe Uh, Keep healthy, wear a mask when you need to, and please get vaccinated. Bye-bye, everybody.